Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space, space. space to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped right, right. boat neck sweaters. sweaters. The Container Store Custom Closet Sale is here with up to 25% off all systems, including Alpha, through October 13th. The Container Store, where space comes from. And now for an inside look at college sports with the men in the know, J.C. and Morgan. Here's Mike Morgan and J.C. Sherbert. Happy, happy new year. Happy 2019 installment of the J.C. and Morgan podcast. He is J.C. Sherbert of 24-7 Sports. I am Mike Morgan of ESPN and the SEC Network. Thank you once again for tuning in for another year. And yes, we do mean year as in each and every week on this podcast. Technically speaking, there's only one game of significance left, but we know college football is a year round sport and we will tackle it throughout the year as we've done now the last couple of years. With that being said, JC, how was your holidays? Hope you had a great Christmas. Hope you had a great, uh, happy new year. Yeah, certainly. Um, got to go home to Greenville, South Carolina for a couple of days and spend some time with some friends and family and, uh, Spent New Year's here in Atlanta, uh, hanging out with a couple of awesome dogs, and uh, that was good. And, uh, man, I've just hit the ground running. I mean, I think this is the first New Year's Eve I can remember where I didn't really have like a uh, what we call a hangover <laughs> on New Year's right. Day. And uh, and that that was kind of refreshing because I, I really think that this, this year is going to be uh, a year of sort of a lot of happenings around college football and a lot of things uh, in other parts of what I do. Um, so it was great to hit the ground running, and it's great here on January 3rd to get this podcast back up and rolling. Really is, really is. As for yours truly, I got a chance to uh, spend most of the time in sunny South Florida and uh, got um, got a chance to do a lot of R&R, did, of course, watch – uh, the semifinals, that was really the two games I was looking forward to because, quite honestly, uh, everything that led up to December the 29th was not overly appealing in a very non-plus bowl season that pretty much encapsulated a non-plus uh, regular season. That's kind of where we are. We'll get to that in a moment. But pretty much the only significant thing that happened to me down there as it pertains to the big news in college football, or some of it, uh, was that no lie. I'm, uh, driving around with the girlfriend one day and kind of giving the, uh, the mic tour, kind of, uh, some of my old stomping grounds. And, um, as I'm driving down in lovely Boca Raton, uh, off of <clears throat> Palmetto Parkway, not too far from the, uh, from the uh, campus of FAU, uh, drive by an old high school, Boca High. Now Boca High is, is an old rival, of the high school I played at. We played a bunch of South Florida schools all over from Miami uh, to Palm Beach County. Uh, but what was significant was I was telling the story like, oh, yeah, that's where Mark Richt played quarterback at Boca High. And in fact, he was the offensive coordinator one year at my high school. I missed playing for Mark Richt by one year. Um, <laughs> he, he made a smart move and got the heck out of my high school and went on to bigger and better things. But, uh, but the very, I mean, less than 24 hours later, the news comes down, and I think everybody was shocked about this. 
there were two coaching uh, notes that shocked everybody. I think Holgerson was the other, but uh, Mark Rick just retiring. And I look back at it now, JC, and I say, well, it's really not that surprising. And that if you looked at him on the sideline, he looked like a pretty miserable next to urban Meyer. I don't know anybody that looked more unsettled on the sideline this year than Mark Richt. Uh, I didn't think it would get to the point of just calling it quits, but, but obviously it did. So that was a little bombshell that, um, uh, I was pretty close to not too far from the campus of the university of Miami, Dana Holgerson leaving West Virginia for Houston. This is, this is really an unprecedented move. We'll talk about some of that rich Rodriguez, new OC at Ole Miss. Uh, but I guess a good jumping off point is the fact that uh, we had the semifinals and all I wanted was two good games. And what I got was zero. And I think that's the sentiment of a lot of college football fans. I'm just going to say this. First of all, you and I have been talking about this for months. I think since before the opening kickoff right now, we are living in an Alabama Clemson world. Okay. I used to say just we're living in an Alabama world. Nick Saban's piloting the plane and we're all in there and we got our seatbelts on. We're not sure where we're going because that we can't buy a ticket. He's he's in control of all of that. Okay, uh, Clemson certainly has a seat in the cockpit. He's like uh, Kareem in airplane. He's like the co-pilot. Uh, Dabo's wearing the knee pads and the goggles, just like Kareem in airplane. Uh, but everybody else is just in the cabin and just hoping that it's a safe ride and we get to our destination on time. I think a lot of us expected both those games to be somewhat lopsided. I don't think many people at all gave Notre Dame a chance to beat Clemson. I don't know many people that gave Oklahoma a chance to beat Alabama. That game was looked like it was going to be just a complete route. I mean, I give Kyler Murray credit. He played his tail off and I give Oklahoma credit. They didn't quit. They made it somewhat interesting in the second half, but overall it's what I expected. Um, and that it was a, another, uh, big 12 team that just can't defend anybody. And I don't know how you'd expect them to, to beat Alabama, which is why I said all along, I thought Ohio state would be a, a better choice, but uh, nevertheless, what, what bothers me about the aftermath of this, this has been like, remember last year we talked about last year was a season of angst for a lot of sec teams, right? Every coach, seemed to be on the hot seat and a record amount of them got fired. And there's a lot of just fan bases that were down in the dumps and feeling like they were completely underachieving and what the hell's going on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this year is the year of the bellyache. It's just the college football, not so much the fans, but I keep hearing this so-called pundits. A lot of these people I actually respect and think are quite intelligent and insightful. But they make this grand leap from here we are again, Alabama, Clemson, clearly in a class of their own, right? There's a there's a drop off between those two and take your pick, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Georgia, et cetera. But what people are trying to convince you is the reason that it is that way is because of a 14 playoff and that somehow if we had an 18 playoff, this wouldn't be the case or. Or let's go backwards. If somehow we had the old BCS, that would fix the problem. In what world are these people living in? Like That's not going to change how good Alabama and Clemson are. It's not going to change how well they're recruiting. It's not going to change how well they develop talent. It's not going to change what a good job Nick Saban, the best coach of our lifetime and maybe of all time in college football, and Dabo Sweeney, 
Well, I think is the most overachieving coach. And I, I don't say that disparagingly. I mean, that as a compliment, the most overachieving uh, college football coach in my lifetime, Th- no matter what system you concoct, it's still going to be an Alabama Clemson world. So that's not the problem. If you view it as a problem, uh, that's just, that's just reality. You got two teams that two programs that are ahead of everybody else. A difference in the playoff system, and I'm on record, I want eight. I know you're on record, you want eight. We have different opinions on how the eight should be selected, perhaps. But that's not going to change the fact that it's still going to be Alabama and Clemson, tier one, a bunch of schools in tier two, and everybody else in tier three. Yeah, and that's the way this season went. Sometimes you just have seasons like that. And, you know, back in the old days, uh, Alabama and Clemson would have met for the national championship in the Sugar Bowl or wherever. I mean, mm-hmm. th- that it wouldn't have been a qu- there would have been no question about it, and people would have griped about an undefeated Notre Dame being left out. But you know, their their schedule through really no fault of their own sucked, and their results were not. I don't even think as good as some other teams that were left out of the playoffs when you look at their body of work. But um, going undefeated still matters in college football, as we've talked about. I think that there's a greater thing at play, and I'm not trying to get conspiratorial here, Mike. I think a lot of the national media despises the way college football is set up. I think a lot of them, you know, whether it's that they're not former players or or folks like that that were attached to the game and they're just kind of curmudgeon curmudgeons and pundits or or whether they were attached to the game and and they don't really care about the health of the sport. They just want to see kind of what would be exciting for them to cover from a work standpoint. You know, I I think that there is a move to sort of uh, professionalize it, for lack of a better term. Um, and, And I think there's different angles for that. And one of the ways you can professionalize it is by consistently harping on Expanding the playoff, uh, killing the bowls, uh, trumpeting, you know, players sitting out of bowl games, uh, making fun of bowls. And what I I don't think people understand and and, and the big miss on all this is that why do so many people love college football? Uh, People love college football because it's very personal to them. Um, People love their college teams because – that was a place that, you know, they, they went to, most of them, for four years and uh, made memories of a lifetime. In some cases, met their soulmate um, and their life partner, and that was the origins of their family. Some people that, that maybe don't even go to those colleges have spent years going and tailgating and pulling for Georgia or, or Clemson or Alabama or whoever, and that's part of the fabric of who they are. Um you know, it's a very personal thing. And, you know, you start alienating, you know, 90% of the fan base because right now, you know, we get to an eight team playoff. The, 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 the argument then becomes, you know, number nine, what do you do with a group of five? It would have been a travesty for UCF to get in, you know, over a team that's, you know, got a couple of losses to some really good teams this year. And, and that's an argument I don't think we want to have. But but that's the thing. They're never going to be happy until we have a 16-team playoff, till players are cashing $15,000 checks every month, and until this thing looks like a professional sports league because that's kind of what they want to do. And I think for some, it's just because that would be more exciting for them to cover. I think for others, it's because they want to thumb it in the nose 
of these people that love college football. Because, look, from the outside, you know, if, if you believe that the United States of America should be more like the European Union, you know, people from Europe probably look at college football and go, you know, over the years before the playoff and go, wow, what, what in the world is this all about? You know, you have passionate fan bases at, you know, 70% of the schools, these rivalry games with these, these trophies that look like buckets and, 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 and pigs and things like that. Um, you know, it takes place everywhere from the metropolis of Los Angeles to Starkville, Mississippi. It takes place everywhere. It's not just for big cities and elites. Uh, it, it is an everyman type of sport, and people feel very connected to it. But if you're sitting outside of the country, you're wondering what the hell's going on. What, what is this? And so if your worldview uh, is that, you know, our country... And, and I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the fabric of our country, and, and sports is a part of the fabric of our country. should be more like Europe. This makes no sense to you at all, even though you're talking about a continent where a sport that ends in a tie most of the time is the most popular one. Um, you know, it, it, it's so different to you, and you, you can't relate to the people that really, really love it, even though that's your job and you cover it and you theoretically love it, that you're going to sit there and try to, you know, tweak it, and, and if things change uh, to fit your worldview or what you think is right, you're going to get some pleasure from thumbing it in the nose of the everyman out there. And, and that's just kind of the way our society here in America is when you're talking about the majority of folks versus folks that think, you know, when they poop, it smells like flowers. Okay, so, so there's different reasons I think people are trying to, to look at, you know, what's made college football great or what's been important to college football for 100 years and completely change it. Uh, and I think that's, you know, part of this is that, you know, it, it, they're never going to be happy until the sport fundamentally changes. Uh, I don't think they like the SEC. I think there's some cultural bias there. Uh, I think that, you know, when you're talking about the last four national championship games have been from two teams uh, in the southeast that all those states border each other, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. You know, I think it ticks them off in, in that from that standpoint, because I think there's some, you know, cultural bias there. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm just talking about some of the big voices. Now, some of the guys, some of the former players and stuff, I just think they're probably sick of seeing the same old matchup. Everybody likes a little variety, Mike. Uh, you and I both are in this business, and, and we do too. Sure. But, but I, and I think that's driving it. But I don't think recommendations for changing or improving the game that so many people love need to come from that area uh, based on people's personal views or personal opinions or what fits them personally. And, and I think that's a big problem these days. Um, you know, it, it's not about the pundits. It's about the game and what's good for it. Uh, and, and I think quite frankly, that the minute that everybody starts to realize that, uh, you know, that's what needs to happen. We'll be fine. You want to go to eight? Fine. And, you know, we can disagree and, and debate on how to get there. Fine. But there's other things that, that, that are a problem, you know, especially the bowls. I, I mean, that, that that was a big red flag for me this, this December um, that are good for the health of the sport as a whole and are part of what has made it so appealing. I mean, you want to talk about money? You know, what's going to happen when you alienate 90% of the fans? Um you know, that's going to be a problem. And the answer is not, oh, well, go to eight, so maybe somebody will knock off Alabama and Clemson. Alabama and Clemson is a factual reality, as you pointed out, 
based on those two programs and the success they're having right now. It won't last forever. Nothing does. But right now, that's how it is. That's just a factual reality. You can't change that by changing the game or changing the rules or changing the setup. Other programs around the country, it's their responsibility to change that, not the responsibility of the media, you know? And, and so I think that that's a factual reality, and it doesn't need to be based on that. What, what it needs to be based on is what is good for the health of the game as a whole. And, and I think there are a lot of discussions that need to be had. Uh, I think killing the bulls uh, is not something that, that, that is a positive move. Um, and I think that there are tweaks they could make uh, to definitely improve it. But, you know, like you said, changing the playoff format is going to do nothing, nothing uh, to stop Alabama and Clemson. That's up to the Georgias of the world, to the Ohio States of the world, to the programs that, that are close to Michigan and, and schools like that. and Texas. Uh, Texas. I mean, it, Oklahoma. It, it's up to those other schools to step up and make that happen. Uh, no kind of policy change is going to change that. Yeah, and again, uh, you said a lot there, but let me let me focus on uh, one specific aspect of it, and that is – I do think I do think I, I can find very little wrong with going from four to eight. OK, I, I could find very, very little wrong with that. So I get that debate. And I, I love the way some people that are, you know, going online and tweeting and writing articles, it, they think as if they've, you know, they've uh, discovered plutonium or something like they, <laughs> this is not some people like, like us have been talking about an 18 playoff for 20 stinking years. Like this is not a novel idea. You're not, you're not reinventing the wheel by saying, I'll tell you what the answer is an 18 playoff. Oh, really? What a brilliant thought. No one's ever come up with that. Um, I, I, what, what bothered me the most is just the misguided notion that somehow that's going to change uh, the fact that you have two programs that have basically dominated this event uh, since it got started. The other thing about it is when you kind of just size it up each and every year, we're, we're always going to have that debate over who the number four team is. The, the moment those two, t- those two games took place, everybody's saying, well, clearly Notre Dame didn't belong and Georgia should have been in. And then Georgia loses to Texas and Georgia did not look like an unmotivated team to me. They just got beat. They just got beat by Texas. They didn't look like they were going through the motions. This was not an Auburn versus UCF deal in the peach bowl a year ago. This was a Georgia team that sure was discouraged by the fact that they had a heartbreaking loss against Alabama, that they had a heartbreaking day sitting by a TV, I'm sure, with some people like the Kirk Herb Streets of the world telling them that they should be in a 14 playoff and then not getting in. But they had plenty of time to kind of get that out of their system, play in the Sugar Bowl, which is a pretty damn cool bowl game to play in and play against a team like Texas, you're not going to be unmotivated in a situation like that. They just got beat. You know, they had Swiss putting the ball on the ground. Fromm was not particularly sharp. The bowl games are the most difficult things to handicap in all of sports because you don't know what team is motivated and what team is not. You don't know how long the layoff, how that long layoff is going to affect each of the respective teams, their unique matchups. There's a lot of things at play that make bowl games very hard to handicap in general. Um, that, to me, wasn't a shocking result. 
but I'm sure for a lot of people it was because they were told Georgia should have been in the playoff the moment that Notre Dame and Oklahoma lost. Look, I said all along, I thought Ohio State was a better team in Oklahoma and a better matchup for anybody there, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Oklahoma didn't belong and that was a crazy selection. Their loss was less egregious than Ohio State's loss. I get it, but you solve a lot of those issues by going to eight. You don't solve the issue of two programs that are clearly ahead of the pack that are going to continue to dominate. And you're right. Everything is cyclical. It's not going to last forever. Wasn't that long ago. We watched Nebraska win three national titles in four years. And then look at what Nebraska turned into. Wasn't that long ago. Tennessee was a top 10 program and look at what it turned into. Wasn't that long ago. Florida won th- two national titles in three years, a plethora of sec championships. And look at what Florida turned into. It's not going to last forever. But if you look at the list of underclassmen that are playing for these two teams on Monday night, there are going to be a lot of those guys back next year, along with top five recruiting classes uh, to supplement the roster. So I wouldn't expect a drop off anytime soon. Yeah. And and you mentioned recruiting. I mean, you know, look, they're, they're Trevor Lawrence and Justin Ross for Clemson. I mean, I think right kind of right before our eyes, we've seen them coming to their own. Um, man, I mean, you, you can't really coach 6'4", 180, 4'5", or 190, 4'5", like Justin Ross has. Uh, and, and I saw him play earlier this year, and he made some great plays for them, you know, for a true freshman. But now he's playing with confidence. And, I mean, man, he, he could be an All-American. Funny thing about him is he's from the state of Alabama. And uh, Clemson and Dabo signed him over Alabama down the stretch last year. So he could have been uh, on the other sideline. Uh, and you mentioned recruiting, Mike. You know, Army All-American Bowl used to be the Army All-American Bowl. It's just called the All-American Bowl not right now. Uh, top recruits in the country are out there. I said this three weeks ago. Uh, some of my friends in the recruiting industry are now jumping on the bandwagon. The number one prospect in this class uh, is a guy named Antonio Alfano uh, from Colonia, New Jersey. I said it on the podcast last time. He's sort of mm-hmm. proving it. This cat... Uh, if you want somebody that's just a freak, he's 6'5", 285. He's going to play at about 6'5", 300, moves around like he's 225, going to Alabama to play the defensive line. Just, uh, you know, if you're out there and you, and you love watching great players, write that name down because Antonio Alfano, to me, per J.C. Sherbert and maybe for, from some other people, uh, is the number one prospect in the country this cycle. So the rich are getting richer and you're right. There's a ton of underclassmen. Bama and Clemson uh, both should be formidable again next year. Clemson on offense. Clemson loses some guys off their defense. Uh, Bama on both sides of the ball have some guys back. They just reload on defense. I don't even know if this is a great Alabama defense this year uh, compared to some previous years. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, th- these two programs are, are the – you know, the, the gold standard right now, and you can't argue with it because three out of four years, you know, that's been the case. And the the team that knocked Clemson out last year it was the year they, they met in the semis at, at the Sugar. So, you know, I, 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 I think it's clear these are the two best programs in college football right now. Uh, I think it would be huge for Clemson to win Monday night, uh, to add another one, you know, to the, to the, the national championship uh, collection. Uh, and if they do, I mean, I think at that point, you know, that, that, that distance grows even bigger between, uh, Clemson and Bama and the rest of the, the country.
Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space, space. space to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped right, right. boat neck sweaters. sweaters. The Container Store Custom Closet Sale is here with up to 25% off all systems, including Alpha, through October 13th. The Container Store, where space comes from. Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space, space. space. to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped right, right. boat neck sweaters. sweaters. The Container Store Custom Closet Sale is here with up to 25% off all systems, including Alpha, through October 13th. The Container Store, where space comes from. Yeah, certainly does. I tell you what, this playoff really could have used. What, what, what really, if you could turn the clock back, and I'm just talking for the for the health of the of the playoff and maybe the sport as a whole. And that's again, as you pointed out, for those of us who love college football, the short the the sport is not in great peril. All right, there's no universal despair. Uh, sometimes things are just predictable. I mean, and sometimes it just it just works out that way. It doesn't mean the fan bases of so many of these programs. Uh, don't love it. Doesn't mean I don't get pumped up every Saturday, whether I'm calling a game or watching a new year's day. I know what I did. I can't say, uh, what, what, what you did, JC. I sat my fat butt on the couch and watched game after game after game. Some of them were not real good. Some of them were okay, but, uh, that's still a tradition for me. And, and that's, that's not going to change. So it, it's not like I don't, you know, they, when somebody puts something out like oh, the ratings are down 12%, it's okay, fine. They could be up 15 next year. Like, the, Don't hit the panic button on the health of the sport overall. The health of the sport overall is pretty damn good. We can argue about the bowl games. Do they get, are the matchups stale? In many cases, yes. I couldn't help but notice, and I'm one that's always said that worrying about attendance figures at bowl games is such a silly exercise because those they're made for TV events that the money that pours in is on the television side. There's already articles now about the championship game, about the, the, the tickets for Alabama and Clemson, which of course is all the way out there in California, which is not too long after many people just spent a lot of money on Christmas holiday and vacations there that all of a sudden the, the, the value of the ticket has gone down that you can get tickets for, below face value, which, uh, is something you wouldn't necessarily expect. There, there's a lot of reasons that go into that, but bottom line is this, even when you see that Goodyear blimp looking down at the Outback bowl, the citrus bowl and whatever else, and you see a ton and it was noticeable, a ton of empty seats, people are watching. It's still what people have a passion for. There's nothing else going on of significance this time of year. People still enjoy it. Would you like fresher matchups? Yeah. Would you like new blood in the playoff? Yeah. And to go back to my original point, if somehow you could turn back the clock and Michigan beat Ohio State and Jim Harbaugh on that team got into a playoff and maybe even won a game, something like that is what this could really use. But look, this is not a this is not a Hollywood movie. Like you, you can't write the script. It has to play out. And right now, the way it's playing out is two programs are head and shoulders above the rest. They just are. 
It is hard that you mentioned that tier two and all those programs have a chance to get there, but they're not there yet. So don't hit the panic button, but you can't hit the reality button and just realize that is the way it is of the bowl games. I mentioned Texas and Georgia and the sugar. I thought that was entertaining. I thought two sec programs made a statement. It was not a banner year for the sec and bowl games. In fact, if you look at it going into this championship game, no conference really made a major statement. The Big 12, 4 and 3, the Big 10, 5 and 4, the ACC 5 and 5, the Pac-12 3 and 4, the SEC 6 and 5. So there's nobody like sitting there pounding their chest going, "We're the best cuz look what we did in the bowl games." They're all around 500. But I did think two particular programs made a statement and and certainly I, I would say kind of a watershed moment for each of these programs for the near term. And that is Kentucky and Florida, Florida wins 10 games after looking like a dumpster fire last year with a quarterback that nobody, including anybody that showed up at the swamp in the past two years thought was any good or was worth an sec starting job. Somehow Dan Mullen got that team at 10 wins and then Kentucky. When you win 10 games at Kentucky as a head football coach, Hats off to Mark Stoops. He was my SEC coach of the year for the regular season. Now I just want to give him another trophy for going out and winning that bowl game against Penn State. That's big time. That's really, and they did it without a quarterback that, quite frankly, is much of a threat to do anything through the air. Uh, I thought that I thought those two programs really have something to to feel good about in this off season. The rest of them, eh. I mean, even the, you know, even the wins is like LSU beats a UCF team. UCF, who clearly their their starting quarterback McKenzie is light years ahead of the backup, and they still only beat UCF by eight points, and it came down to an onside kick, which UCF should have recovered. Uh, Auburn blows out a, a, a less than stellar opponent. Uh, Texas A and M. A and M was pretty impressive against NC State, but I mean, I thought all year NC State was kind of a. So did I. That's the thing. That's why I can't get too excited about that. And then, of course, the losses. I mean, a game I know you were keeping an eye on. South Carolina gets blanked by Virginia. Shocking. That's that's a head scratcher. (laughs) I don't know anybody that saw that one coming. Um, Iowa beats Mississippi State. Yeah, Mississippi State. But, you know, again, I mean, Nick Fitzgerald never turned into a passer. And still, you you got a starting quarterback. It's under 50%. It's, It's tough to feel great about winning any game if even if you got three first rounders on defense yeah Vanderbilt gave Baylor a pretty good game I thought down there probably yep. should have won Keyshawn Vaughn played really well for them he's a beast NFL all the way yeah I mean great you know grad transfer from Illinois Levy Smith's probably missing him but uh <laughs> you know he's from Nashville so he's kind of coming home but uh you know I, I, I you know Vandy lost but I think uh I think um you know, they, they gave a good account for themselves. Missouri loses to Oklahoma State in a, in a classic Big 12 showdown. Um, <laughs> and, and, look, I, I think I think the losses for South Carolina and Missouri sting both of those programs. Um, the manner in which the Gamecocks lost was shocking. I don't think that helps the narrative uh, about Will Muschamp and his offense. And, and this is an offense that against, you know, Chattanooga and Clemson, the last two games of the season put up 1,220 yards and 94 points or whatever. Uh, and then just the bottom fell out. They were missing Debo Samuel, but that should not have mattered. They were missing Debo all year last year and did not get shut out by Virginia. Um, and then Missouri, you know, 
Missouri heading into the Liberty Bowl, Mike, was eight and four. Their losses were to then number one Alabama, then number two Georgia, South Carolina on the last play of the game in a rainstorm, and then that inexplicable 15-14 loss at home to Kentucky. So that's two, two games on the last play of the game, number one and number two. Uh, other than that, they played really solid football this year. Um, and, and to go and lose to an Oklahoma State team that, quite frankly, you know, was up and down this season. I know they beat Texas, but then they'd lose. I mean, they, they kind of go back and forth. You know, I think that stings them a little bit as far as their momentum as they head into next year where they do get Kelly Bryant, but and they have a lot of other good players coming back um, uh, and, and could have made a run. Now, look, I've never uh, – those two teams are not the first teams to lay eggs in bowl games. Neither is Georgia. Um Alabama has lost two Sugar Bowls by double digits during the Nick Saban era. Uh, one was to Utah about 20. One was to Oklahoma by 14 a couple of years back. Uh, coincidentally, the last time they weren't in the hunt for championships. So, so that's not, you know, that, that, that's something that I just think happens. Like, you're right. You can't handicap uh, bowls very well. They're hard to kind of predict. But, you know, Sometimes also it's the manner in which you lose uh, that kind of forces you to kind of look at your program, uh, which I think is is the case of South Carolina. I think that they're going to need to find out what happened there. And then in the case of Missouri, it's just kind of like pulling the rug out from under you because you've had such a great year. And then you go and you lose to a team that you know, used to play a lot in Oklahoma State in the Big 12. And, you know, they're not the best Oklahoma State team ever. And you lose a shootout and that just kind of same old, same old. So, um, on that note, I want to I want to say this. I, I, this is the first year, Mike, and I don't know about you that that I felt like the bowls were almost existing in a vacuum from a media standpoint, as far as how much they're talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really feel that way the first four years of the playoff. I, I felt like there was a lot of emphasis on the playoff, and rightfully so. But then they were they talked about other teams and things like that. It was almost like playoff, 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 playoff. All right, now we're going to go out and, uh, you know, we'll bring you the Outback Bowl. I also noticed the attendance is down, uh, and I know that that's not where the majority of the money comes from. I think they need to fix the bowl system, and and I'll tell you why. This whole uh, tie-in type of deal, in other words, your, your SEC teams, Big Ten always goes to the Outback. Uh, you know, SEC versus Big Ten or ACC in the Citrus. Uh, Music City, SEC. You know, I think that that's been going on, if you look back through history, it's been virtually set for about 22 years, probably since the, the Bowl Alliance became the BCS, probably 20 years, okay? I think that at the time it was a good idea for the Bowls, for the conferences, because you can guarantee – you know, this team, you know, our teams that are bowl eligible will go to a bowl game. I think that was great. But but I think that it's eroded because, you know, number one, you do have a lot of emphasis on the playoff now. And I think teams kind of get disappointed. It, 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 you know, it, it is, uh, to a certain extent, becoming like the NIT. Um, and, and I didn't think that would happen, but, but you can kind of feel it happening this year. Uh, number two, I think with fans – you know, how many times if you're an SEC program that's one of these that's middle of the pack, how many times can you go get excited about playing Iowa in Jacksonville, Orlando, or Tampa? And it happens over and over and over again 
with these tie-ins, and it was inevitable. You know, what I propose is we do away with the tie-ins, maybe guarantee a conference a certain number of slots, get together and, and have have a bowl draft or do it like they used to do and do the smoke-filled rooms and, and back, back room deals mm-hmm. and invite teams and, um, you know, put an emphasis on variety of destination because uh, I do think that, you know, let's say instead of Mississippi State, you know, going to the Outback Bowl again or going to Florida again for a bowl game, they, they were in the Tampa Bay area under Mullen a couple of years ago. Let's say maybe they went to the Las Vegas Bowl and instead of playing Iowa, you know, they went out there and played Cal or Arizona State or, or even, a, you know, a Big 12 team like a Texas Tech or something. I don't know if those teams were bowl eligible or not, but that's just hypothetical. I think those fans – you know, would get more, would be more interested in doing something different against an opponent that they're never going to schedule home and home. Although I do think Mississippi State has scheduled Arizona State home and home in a, in a few years. Um, I, you know, and going someplace new and fun, then maybe, uh, you know, ah, well, it's the Outback Bowl again. Uh, and I think from a television standpoint, too, Mike. You know, because these schedules are set so far in advance and you know who you're going to play, um, and in the SEC in particular now with the snaking cross-division schedule, in other words, in the SEC now, you don't play like Alabama one year and then go to Alabama the next. You play Alabama, then you play LSU, then you play Auburn, then you play Mississippi State, and it, you just kind of sneak snake through, in other words. So, so you don't see some teams for 10 years almost. Um and I've noticed that when fan bases in the SEC do get the chance to go play a team in the West that they don't ever play, they they tend to bring big crowds, regardless of their team's record, because it's a different trip. Uh, and I think from a television standpoint, you know, you get some cross-sectional games that are interesting to all college football fans. I mean, I would love to see, you know, Oregon play Texas A&M in a bowl game this year. Jimbo Fisher versus the Mighty Ducks, you know? I mean, different styles, different styles of play, kids from different parts of the country. Um, To me, that's far more interesting than seeing Texas A&M go beat up on NC State, uh, who was, you know, lucky to be in the Gator Bowl this year and, and, you know, is a team that Texas A&M could possibly schedule at some point. Um, I I think those matchups are sort of played out. Uh, I think that that's a way to save the bowl system uh, is to make it a little more interesting and put a little more variety so you don't have fan bases going to the same game year after year after year. Jess, it's happening. Whoa, Tina, what are you doing in my car? Space is here now. No closet will be left behind. Did you say closet? Yes, the Container Store custom closets are up to 25% off. It doesn't matter the size or shape. Space is coming to them all. You're not serious. Space isn't a joke, Jess. How long do we have? Through October 13th. All right, buckle up. The Container Store Custom Closet Sale is here with up to 25% off all systems, including Alpha. The Container Store, where space comes from. Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space Space. to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped Striped. boat neck neck. sweaters. Sweaters. The Container Store Custom Closet Sale is here with up to 25% off all systems, including Alpha, through October 13th. The Container Store, where space 
comes from. Agree with everything you said. I have a little bit different take on how a lot of people view it. In other words, I don't think anybody would be opposed to what you're what you're talking about in fresher matchups because there's just way too many of the same conference align uh, conference tie-in uh, games that are just seem to we're hitting the repeat button and it, enough is enough already. G- g- give me something different. Give me a little. Give me a little added uh, something into my diet. Get all that. I still think, though, no matter what you do, to your first point, on a national standpoint, people are going to be playoff obsessed. And, yes, we will get to eight at some point. And that will be even more obsessed with those eight teams and those initial four matchups versus the other bowl games. But I, th- I look at the bowl games. This is why I never complain about them overall because it feels like there's 39 bowl games. My goodness, a travesty. Well, to that, I always say, don't watch if you're, if you're that offended by it. I mean, look, I don't watch them all. I, I you're talking to two college football fanatics here. Uh, I don't watch them all, but there, I look at the bowl game, the mo- the overwhelming majority of them. And look, the sugar bowl still to me is exciting. The peach bowl in Atlanta rarely puts up a dud and rarely struggles with attendance. Part of that is the venue, but I look at most of the bowl games as just an additional regular season game. It's just, it's the 13th game. And the only way you don't get into that game, because it's really, it's, it's not a luxury anymore to say you went to a bowl game. Remember and Kyle make a college basketball analogy real quick. Used to be where coaches, SIDs programs would brag about a 20 win season, right? We had a 20 win season. Oh my goodness. Well, nowadays a 20 win season might get you in the NIT. Okay, because there's more games. It depends on strength of schedule. It depends on RPI, BPI. So that 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 measure is antiquated. The measure of a good season used to be we made it to a bowl game. That measure is antiquated. Most of the bowl games now outside of the playoff and outside the you know, the new year six, what have you, are just a 13th regular season game. That's all. And if you're so bad that you're below 500, well, you really don't want to play in that game anyway. You're tired of getting your butt kicked in every week. Let's just call it a year and regroup. So we're not going to a tier three bowl game. We're not, we're not going to do it overall, but I, I get it. Like we all, everybody, ha ha ha, make fun of the sponsor make fun of how lame the, uh, the title of the bowl game is. I get it. It's funny, but, but for, for goodness sakes, wh- why does it bother you? If a Mac team is playing and a conference USA team is playing for those fan bases, it's important. It means something. It gives them a chance to get a little money in the coffers because we know group five is struggling financially to compete. So it doesn't bother me. I, I, I just, I get a kick out of people that are just so frustrated with the amount of bowl game. Don't look at it that way. Just look at it as a 13th uh, regular season game. Look, I had some friends in town that, went to the peach bowl and they had a great time. Yeah. They, they love the trip. They love the fact that, you know, they were Florida fans. They got a chance to say they beat up on, on Michigan, which is a team they don't play on a regular basis, obviously. So some of those, I, I enjoyed watching Georgia, Texas. Some of those games are still good. They're not like dead and buried, but obviously we, we are living in a playoff world now just like we used to be living in a BCS world. The playoff didn't destroy this. This this started to change the moment the BCS came into play in 98 and everybody was obsessed with who is number one versus number two and everybody else was playing for whatever else. 
Now everybody's obsessed with who's number one, two, three, four, and the rest is the rest. W- one more thing I got to say this on the, on the playoff itself. Can we not start looking at Notre Dame a little bit differently? Because I don't want to have to go through this again. If you look at Notre Dame's results, the last five, six times they've been in either the playoffs or the BCS title game, it's been embarrassing. It's been embarrassing. And I'm not one of these Notre Dame haters, but you want to stay out of a conference? Fine. It's your God-given right to do it. It's your financial uh, acumen that tells you that that's the right move to make. Good for you. However, the rest of us don't have to be convinced because you went 12-0 and that it's the same as another team that does play in a better conference that clearly does have or a conference at all that clearly does have better talent that went say 12 and one. I, I think we need to stop being fooled by the allure of Notre Dame. I think we, we, we can't just keep doing this and putting the, putting them in this situation and then they get whacked in, on the biggest stage possible. And it's clear to everybody that they're not in the same ballpark. Here's the thing I, I thought about Notre Dame is number one. I don't, I think Clemson give credit to Clemson for playing well. I don't think Notre Dame, uh, played all that well, but but when you really looked at it for the speed on the field and the talent, the athletes on each side, I mean, it was night and day. Uh, and, and Notre Dame allegedly recruits really well, and I think they do. They put guys in the NFL, and they're a good team. I, I think two things happened. I think, number one, um, this was a year where the rule or the, the the it's a kind of a it's kind of like a baseball rule one of those un, unwritten baseball rules going undefeated means everything in college football um and this was a year where we have two teams in the playoff that strength of schedule wise uh if they were being seeded in the basketball tournament according to how they do it neither one would have been number 1 seeds mike because their schedule strength was that bad you get docked in the in the big dance. You get docked for set schedule strength. Absolutely. Now in a four team playoff, you know you had two teams um, that played a combined fourteen ACC games, and the ACC was not a good conference top to bottom. Their bowl record notwithstanding, congrats to Duke and Virginia and all those other ACC programs that won bowls. But I've learned over the years, bowl records are not uh, necessarily bragging rights or indicative of how good your conference is. Um, and uh, you look at it, and, 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 okay, so two of those teams went undefeated. Okay, one was winning games by scores of 77 63-3, 59-10, 56-35, 35-6. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. They handled their business. I mean, remember when Nebraska used to be in the Big Eight with Oklahoma? Mm-hmm. And the Nebraska-Oklahoma game was was the game because everybody else was terrible. Um, and then Colorado kind of came along and was okay. But, you know, those other schools were bad. And you'd see you know, Oklahoma 77, Kansas 3, Oklahoma 66, Missouri 10. You know, to me, that's okay in Clemson's case. Plus, they did win the conference championship game, albeit against a pit team that was very flawed. Notre Dame, in most years, this schedule would have been fine. It wasn't a scheduling issue. Shoot, you play Michigan, you got Florida State, you go at Virginia Tech, you go at Southern Cal, you got Stanford at home. 
The problem was, and this happens in college basketball too, um, you can ask our good friend Frank Martin about that, um, as, as to what happened to his team a couple of years ago, the year before the Final Four, when they got left out. All of those teams tanked except Michigan. So you had a seven-point win over Michigan at the beginning of the year. You're clinging to for dear life for validity. Other than that, yeah, it's great to go win in Blacksburg by double digits. But Virginia Tech, half their defense was hurt this year, and they kept losing players, and they were very mediocre. Uh, I think they went 6-7 and seven and lost the military bowl to Cincinnati. We know Florida State was a dumpster fire, as was Southern Cal. Inexcusable seasons on the part of those two teams. Notre Dame beat Pitt by five, Vandy by five, Ball State by eight. Yes, they won all their games. but And yes, there were some big-name opponents on the schedule. There's no question. But at the end of the day, who did they really beat? They beat Michigan by seven in Shea Patterson's first start as the quarterback of the Wolverines at home in South Bend. Great. Michigan, as we, as we see how it turned out, probably was, you know, a little, they had some shortcomings, let's just say. Um, so at the end of the day, I, I think that, that maybe the key is they have to start not – they have to be mindful of overvaluing going undefeated. I still think it matters. I do. But the Clemson undefeated to me is a lot different than the Notre Dame undefeated uh, because Clemson did take care of business in certain games. And I'm not talking about running up the score. I'm talking like Notre Dame was in fourth quarter games with Vandy and Ball State and Pitt and Northwestern, who was a division champion. But I, I just, uh, you know, I just, I think that that has to kind of be taken into account, particularly uh, during a year where, you know, most of the games you circle for the Irish saying, oh, this one will make, may be tough. All those teams tank. And, and, and you know, look, uh, it's a judgment call. You know, you still want to value going undefeated. That's fine. But do I think for a minute that Notre Dame would beat Ohio State on a neutral field? No, they'd lose by two touchdowns, in my opinion. Do I think that they would beat Georgia on a neutral field? No, I think they'd lose by two touchdowns, and they play in Athens next year, so we shall, we shall see. Um, do I Oklahoma. think they, they wouldn't beat Oklahoma? Do I think they'd beat LSU? No. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I think that, you know, that's those are the questions, I think, with the playoff that, that folks are going to have to start to answer. And if we do go to eight, and, and then seeding matters because seeding determines if you get a home game or not, I think you got to start taking that into account. You know what I'm saying? Well, I'm, I'm just over it in terms of the, the separate rules for Notre Dame. I'm just over it. Like I, 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 it was clearly a, a decision based on, quote, unquote, most deserving over most talented. Um, nobody watched tape, nobody that does this for a living. And I know a couple that do, uh, at our network and nobody that watched tape on Notre Dame thought that they were one of the top four teams in the country. No one, no one. And it shows out. I mean, you watch them against Clemson and I, I, yeah, you're right. Clemson, give them credit. Clemson's Clemson. But I'm here to tell you, uh, it's not just Clemson. It's not just Alabama. You could have picked the other schools that you just alluded to and Notre Dame would have problems. And again, this is not, I'm not just picking on Notre Dame based on a one-year sample size. We've seen this movie before. We saw it when they played Alabama. 
in the 2012 season and got whacked 42 to 14. I mean, you look at the list of bowl games, significant bowl games, not the pinstripe bowl that Notre Dame won, and certainly not the, uh, uh, let's see, they won a Citrus Bowl. Yeah, they, they beat right at LSU in the Citrus Bowl last right. year. Right, and they won a Music City Bowl, and all that's great. But in the big ones, Sugar Bowl, 07, LSU, 41-14. Uh, Fiesta Bowl, 06, Ohio State, 34-20. I mean, I just go on and on and on and on. It's like at, at some point, I get it, they've got cachet, they're a brand and everything else, but we need to stop... I'm not saying they're UCF, but we need to start looking at them a little bit like we'd look at UCF, right? I mean, we, we didn't sit there and say UCF is definitely one of the top four teams in the country because they were undefeated and the other teams in question weren't. We have to look at Notre Dame. Yes, they had big name schools on their schedule, almost all of whom were worse than what we thought they would be. And if that's the case, you don't just give Notre Dame a free pass at some point, if they want to go ahead and go for the money grab of not having to share comp- money with the conference, if they want to have their own TV network, that's fine. That's great. You have every right to do so. But we don't have to go ahead and be <laughs> beholden to basically a separate. Remember, when we had the BCS, we literally had a separate rule for Notre Dame on the books. <laughs> literally. I mean, that's, that's how much college football has bent over backwards to try to keep Notre Dame relevant and to try to make sure that they're going to be, if it's close, Notre Dame gets invited to the party. Okay. If it, if this is like a club, they are the hot girl that goes to the front of the line, even though other people have been waiting for an hour in that same line, but this is the hot girl with the really low cut dress and the bouncer says, Oh, it's, it's good. Come on in. That's what Notre Dame has been. And I think at some point, not hating on the Irish, really not. I've got friend. I have a good friend that actually is an alum. Notre Dame is fine by me. I'd love to see him in a conference. Not going to happen. Okay, if it's not going to happen, we need to stop bending over backwards for Notre Dame and look at it because you could see this was not that hard to tell that this was not one of the top four teams in college football, and they played like it once again uh, against Clemson when they put a whopping three points on the board. Okay. Uh, I know we're, we're getting long on time here. Just a couple other things. The, um, I just want to say this real quick since we are in Atlanta and, and I know there's you know a lot of sec fans that uh, listen to this. I mentioned the Mark Rick story kind of in passing, but just let me, uh, add one thing to it. And I want to get your thoughts on it as well. I think Mark Rick history is going to be better. I hope at least kinder to Mark Rick 10 years from now, 20 years from now than it is right now. Uh, his departure, his firing at Georgia was celebrated by many. And of course, Kirby comes right in there and in year two and in year three puts together some pretty blockbuster seasons. So a lot of people now just want to like forget Mark Rick did anything good at Georgia. Georgia was one of the most underachieving programs before Mark Rick got there. And maybe he didn't get over the hump, but he certainly did a lot of good things to stabilize that program. So when I got the news, when I heard the news that he retired, I couldn't help but think of that. Didn't work out at Miami. It it seems like that should have been a great fit. You know, a a South Florida guy, a a U guy coaching at the U and they started off like gangbusters rattling off whatever it was, nine, 10 in a row and then crashing down. It's clear his best days are behind him. Uh, I'm glad he retired. But I will say this, I have nothing but respect, not only for Mark Rick, the man, 
but what Mark Rick did at Georgia, because Mark Rick did make Georgia better and he did make Georgia relevant, uh, during a, a time frame where they followed up some coaches that, uh, were classic underachievers, see Ray golf, look at the records, talk to Georgia fans, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Rich Rodriguez, new OC at Ole Miss. I'm not sure what to make out of this JC. Um, it seems like Rich Rodriguez has 27 lives as a, as a credible uh, play caller. Maybe that's a great fit. Maybe it's not. I don't know. We'll find out. And then in the most shocking one, uh, Dana Holgerson leaves West Virginia for Houston. This is just more evidence to me that Houston needs to be in the Big 12. Uh, they have the money. They have the resources. They're not going to hurt that league. They can only help that conference. Um, and Dana Holgerson realizes that as well. So the mullet, the skullet, they're both going to the Lone Star State and coaching the Cougars. So it'll be interesting to see what that means. If you're a West Virginia fan, you got to be shaking your head going, we just lost our coach to a team in the American. Anyway, your thoughts on those three coaching moves. So let me let me talk about Mark Rick versus Kirby Smart real quick. Mark Rick took over a 7 and 4 team from Jim Donnan. I remember I think Jim Donnan Georgia played in that bowl game in Hawaii in 2000. It was the year Quincy Carter and and that group they were top 5. They underachieved. I think finished 7 and 4. I think they actually beat Virginia in the Hawaii Bowl, finished 8 and 4. In comes Mark Rick. First year, Mark Rick goes eight and four. He wins the Music City Bowl in Nashville, Tennessee. Kirby Smart comes in. First year, goes eight and five, wins the Liberty Bowl in Memphis, Tennessee. Second year, Mark Rick goes 13 and one, wins the first SEC championship in 23 years, finishes ranked third in the country, uh, wins the division, wins the SEC championship. Kirby Smart comes in, wins the division, wins the SEC championship. Goes and wins, uh, and, and Rick, by the way, won the Sugar Bowl uh, that year. Smart goes and wins his bowl game, the Rose Bowl against Oklahoma, which is a semifinal game, and then is a play away from beating Alabama for all the marbles. Year three, Mark Rick wins the SEC East, does not win the SEC. LSU beats him by 21. Saban beats him by 21 at the Georgia Dome. Uh, I think LSU won that national championship that year. They go to the Citrus Bowl and lose a surprising game to Michigan State and finish 11-3. and Kirby Smart wins the division with relative ease, goes and loses to Saban by a touchdown at Mercedes-Benz, and then surprisingly goes and loses the Sugar Bowl to Texas. Rick was 32-8, Kirby's 34-10. With the exception of getting to the national championship game, which is an accomplishment, which is a program – uh, a goal that program had not reached. They were close under Rick in 012. And, but I think that, uh, you know, the, the results the first three years are, are very, very similar, almost shockingly similar, right down to winning a bowl game in Tennessee after a first year. Um, and so I think the key for Kirby is to keep it above board. Um, and, and I think at that point, you know, that's what you got to look at. As far as Mark Rick goes, I think Georgia fans, I think being someplace 15 years is an awful long time. Uh, I think when you see that in half of that time, Saban built a Goliath at Alabama, and Alabama was not one of the better programs in the league before he got there. 
Um, I think they looked and they saw that Auburn had won a national championship and played for another, that Florida had won two national championships, and Georgia's a program that has national championship aspirations. So they made the move. Um, and now it's up to Kirby Smart to, to kind of break through, and he's already inching towards that. Uh, as far as Miami goes, I felt, and you and I both, we talked about it the day he got hired, Mike. We've actually had this podcast that long. Um, <laughs> we talked about it that, you know, that could be a great hire for Miami. And, and uh, at the 10,000-foot level, it made sense. Uh, he's an alum. He's from down there. You know, Miami should be good. And look, I think last year they had a great run, and then the bottom fell out. And and when things like that happen, I think, you know, Mark Rick, his thing when he got back in, he wanted to call plays and stuff like that. And, and I think that his offense, I think whereas back in the day he was one of the best play callers in the game, I think things have sort of changed. He didn't really have a quarterback, an answer at quarterback to play his style. Uh, I think that that program down there, it, it, you know, when have you ever seen a guy with his personality, you know, his stoic demeanor and, and level-headedness, which I think is great. There hadn't really been that many guys like that at Miami that have, that have had the great success. You know, not that Jimmy Johnson and Dennis Erickson and Howard Schnellenberger and Butch Davis were, you know, clowns on the sideline or anything, but um, – you know, they were a little bit more edgy than Mark Rick. And I think when you talk about the DNA of a program, the, the U, Miami, is edgy. It's, it's about recruiting South Florida, South Florida kids, and going out there with a swagger and playing. And outside of having his team run on the field uh, before they played Florida one year at Georgia, you know, Mark Rick's teams didn't always play with that swagger. And uh, they did at times, but not always. And, but, and, but it's not the level of swagger you need at Miami. As for Holgerson, the writing's sort of been on the wall up there for a while. They haven't been happy with each other. It's kind of like a divorce you see coming, and then you're like, mm-hmm. ah, well, you know, Betty and Tom broke up. Well, oh, that's not a surprise. <laughs> they looked miserable last time I saw them. Um, Houston, I think, did make a statement with the hire in terms of the money that they were able to pay. But it didn't surprise me, Mike, because they were paying Kendall Bryles, who went to Florida State, which I think will save the Willie Taggart era at FSU and actually will bring FSU back quicker than we thought. They were paying him seven hundred grand a year to be the offensive coordinator. Um, they've got money. Uh, oh, yeah. Fertitta, their big uh, booster down there, pours money into that. They have good boosters. It's, it's in Houston. I'm with you. It's a no-brainer for them to be in the Big 12. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's another discussion for uh, another day. Rich Rod, if he doesn't end up going and getting another job, like you hear, hear his name mentioned with the return to West Virginia, I don't think that works. Um, or Temple even, which is now open because Manny Diaz went back to Miami and now is the Miami head coach, which I think could be an, an, a pretty good hire at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot worse play callers you can hire at Ole Miss. Um, I also think that it's a different style than what uh, Longo ran. It's more of a quarterback run-based system. Uh, I don't know if he has that guy there right now, but I'll, t- I'll tell you this. You can recruit guys like that, Mike, out of Ole Miss's recruiting footprint every day and twice on Sunday. There's mm-hmm. always a great dual-threat quarterback 
in either the state of Mississippi, in Memphis, over in Alabama, Alabama and Auburn don't want, down in Louisiana, you know, Pat White was a guy they got out of Alabama at West Virginia, and then in the Mississippi Junior College system as well. So, you know, how long is he going to be there? You know, are they setting him up to take the job if they punt Matt Luke? I don't know. I don't know. But I think that as far as scheme and plan, that's not a bad idea for Ole Miss uh, getting Rich Rod. It's just, you know, what's what what's going to ultimately happen there is a bigger question for me. Big year for Matt Luke. Um, you know, the, the good vibes that you get from a guy who's an alum who has uh, generations of people in his family that played football at Ole Miss. And I can uh, say firsthand, doing a few of their games, one of the most likable coaches out there. I mean, Matt Luke not only wins the press conference, if you just spend a minute talking to him in, in passing, uh, I don't care if it's at the gas station, at the pump, you're going to fall in love with the guy. But at some point, Ole Miss got a taste of it. Well, you and I always talk about this. Fan bases see that high water mark and then they think that's supposed to be the norm. Uh, Hugh freeze gave them back-to-back wins over Alabama, got them in a, uh, BCS game back when we were still calling them that. Um, and, and all of a sudden Ole Miss fans are thinking, well, okay, he got us on probation, but still once we get it cleaned up, uh, Matt Luke should be getting us back to where Hugh free was, Hugh freeze was. I don't know if that's re- realistic at this point. Uh, no matter who's calling the plays on offense, and I know they made a change with the defensive coordinator, but I don't see Ole Miss becoming uh, really a, a force on defense in the SEC anytime soon. I think they, they've got a ways to go in recruiting before they get that done. Uh, that wasn't all a, um, a coaching problem. That's a, that's a Jimmy's and Joe's problem, which is not going to be fixed in one year. Just to, to circle back on Miami real quick, I saw um, – uh, one of my cohorts tweets something about, uh, you know, cause I believe he lives down in South Florida. Well, it, it's, you know, Miami. And if you just recruited the top players in Miami alone, uh, you're going to be a, a top 10 program. You, you just can't let Alabama come in there. Um, note to self th- that, that genie has been out of the bottle for about, uh, 25 years. It's not just Alabama that goes into South Florida and plucks kids away. Everybody in the country does. Not every kid that grows up in the 305 wants to stay in the 305. Uh, the U, uh, Luther Campbell can uh, can hype it up all he wants and maybe bring back a uh, as nasty as they want to be CD and and try to get the whole thing going on. Miami is not as attractive a job as a lot of people might think it is. This is not the Howard Schnellenberger, Jimmy Johnson, uh, heck, even Larry Coker. Uh, Miami team. This is not um, Dennis Erickson's Miami team. What you saw out of Al Golden, what you saw out of Mark Richt might be a little closer to reality. In other words, you know, they put together some, some decent years, not great, but the next guy that comes in, I like the hire of Manny Diaz, by the way, I'm, I'm a Manny Diaz guy. I thought he got a raw deal in Texas years ago was a fell on the sword for a lot of different problems that they had toward the end of the Mac Brown era. But Miami, in terms of facilities, in terms of fan base, in terms of it's not the same as it was. It's not to say they can't be good, 
but to think that Miami is just going to be a top 10 program, the only reason they're not an elite program again is because they keep missing on the head coaching hire. I think that's a misnomer. And I think the, I know for a fact being from down in that area that not every South Florida kid dreams of being a Miami hurricane. Oh, by the way, they've got Florida, Florida state, and now even UCF and USF that are options. And then all these schools, including big 10 schools like Ohio state and Michigan that get guys from there, other sec schools like Alabama that get guys from there. So just don't be delusional and thinking that Miami should be a top 10 program just because of where they are. And if they hire the right coach, that's going to happen right away. I, I think joining the ACC has sort of drugged them down. I mean, I, you know, you look at it, they joined the ACC in what, 04, 05, uh, 01, they won it all, 02, they played for it and got upset. And then it's been the wilderness for about 20 years now. So some of these kids – you know, they've grown up in a titleless environment when it comes yep. to Miami because they haven't even won the ACC. I mean, they haven't even, they've won one division. Oh, yeah. Mark Rick did that one division in a division that has such powerhouses as, well, I, I don't want to insult all those schools. Do you remember what the concern was, real quick, when they joined the ACC and they did the divisional lineup the way they did? The fear was that it was going to be so anticlimactic that it was going to be Florida state and Miami just having a rematch every year in the ACC championship game. And it hasn't happened one time. And so that league, which is very reactionary and, and makes poor decisions sometimes they, so they put, uh, they were like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put three ACC championship games in Jacksonville and one in Tampa. And I think all those years they had Virginia Tech and Boston College, Georgia Tech, Wake Forest. I think they had Clemson, Georgia Tech the year in Tampa. That was Clemson's first trip in 09. And so that that drew a crowd. But, you know, you got Georgia Tech and Wake Forest in Jacksonville in the first weekend of December playing for the ACC title. You know, that's not going to draw. Virginia Tech and Boston College played in back-to-back years. One of those was in Jacksonville. One was in Tampa. Hokie fans travel better than anybody. Uh Uh-uh, not to that one. Hmm. Um, So they screwed up. And and it's because Miami hasn't held up their end of the bargain. And here's why. All right? Class of 2019, number one player in Dade Broward, Palm Beach, is Frank Latson, 6'4 receiver. He's going to Clemson. Number two, Akeem Dent. For Palm Beach Central High School, your neck of the woods, going to Florida State. Number three is Tyreek Stevenson, Miami Southridge. He is trending to the University of Georgia. Miami is in the hunt. Defensive end from Cardinal Gibbons of Fort Lauderdale. Chris Bogle is the next ranked player. Miami leads for him, but's fighting off Tennessee. Kyler Elam, uh, who is Matt, I think related to Matt Elam, who went to Florida, he's going to go be a Gator. Um, Jordan Battle, top player at St. Thomas Aquinas. Alabama. Mark Anthony Richards, top player at Palm Beach Wellington, probably going to Auburn. Um, You know, you have to scroll all the way down, Mike. I mean, look, they may get Steve. I mean, I don't, you know, all right. The number 26 player in Dade Broward, Palm Beach is safety Keontra Smith. Hell of a player. Chaminade Madonna Prep is the highest rated player going to Miami in this recruiting class. Now they may get some others, but, but you have Oregon, you have Georgia, you have Florida, you have South Carolina, you have Florida state, you have Clemson, um, Penn state, uh, all taking players out of that area. And, you know, that's kind of what made that program great was they, they sort of built a fence. It was hard to go in there and get guys away from Miami. 
But nowadays, I mean, you know, kids 15, 16 years old, it's been that long since they've really played a meaningful football game outside of the game against Clemson two years ago where they got waxed. So, yeah, it's going to erode. And, and they don't have the, the great – they have good facilities. They don't have great facilities. They don't have great facilities that you know, other schools do and the bells and whistles and the large crowds and all that. You know, they're sort of a brand – they're kind of one of those unique programs in college football. And, I, I'm, not, and I'm not saying it can't be done again down there. I, I think in that division anything can happen. It's, it's, it's a – there should be a guy at a commercial for the ACC Coastal that pops out of a box with confetti <laughs> uh, and a little clown nose on that says, ACC Coastal, anything can happen. That's a good promo for the ACC Network, by the way. Tell them I'll direct it. But, okay. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that they're dead because I think, you know, you win the division, you have a good team, maybe you upset Clemson or Florida State, hey, you're in the playoff. But I, I just don't see where they have the advantages, the overwhelming advantages that they once did. I think Mark Rick realized that along with his offensive style. Um, and we'll see if Manny Diaz – you know, who's the next guy who I have a lot of respect for too. Uh, when he gets a crack at it, we'll see, um, see what he can do. Yeah. The guy that I'm shocked that, that this never worked out. Cause I always thought that, that he was going to wind up at Miami. It would be the perfect fit was Mario Cristobal, but he ain't leaving Oregon. <laughs> Cause he's, he's doing some really good things right now in Eugene. And I, I think that, uh, that bus has, has left the station. I, I'll say this, and I, I've got I've got a couple of sources I talked to out in Eugene, and uh, I'll say this: I I don't I don't think Miami really inquired about him because of his buyout, because I think it's about ten million. Of course, they had to fork out a couple of mil for Diaz at Temple, but uh, if they would have been able to get to that money, I, I don't know that we wouldn't be talking about Oregon having three coaches in three years. I think that's sort of the the passion, right? So to speak, that that, that Mario Cristobal has for that place. But but I'm telling you this, Manny Diaz gets it going in any kind of way. Cristobal gets it rolling in Oregon. You know, Cristobal is going to be in line for you know heading back to the southeast at, at one of these big-time SEC program. I mean, you could really see, you know, if he gets Oregon going, um, you could see that guy, you know, having a tough choice to make when, when one of these bigger programs, either in the Big 12 or the SEC or the Big 10, you know, throws a wad of cash at him um, coming up. So, Ducks and Phil Knight, you better start preparing thy pocketbook. Something tells me they'll they'll find a few – few coins stuck in between the seat cushions over there with all that nike money down there do want to mention one of our proud sponsors bp skinner clothiers so many of you took advantage of a great opportunity during the holidays to get yourself or a loved one a gift from bp skinner clothiers and so many of you will do the same i'm hoping and i'm sure in 2019 i include myself on that list brent skinner and the gang do a tremendous job and they know that your look should be as unique as you are whether you're looking to fill holes in your wardrobe get a new garment for a special occasion or just want to replace an old suit our expert clothiers will guide you through the process from start to finish at bp skinner clothiers again so many people throughout the country have discovered the difference that brent skinner can make and once they try them out 
They don't look for anybody anymore. Check them out, bpskinnerclothiers.com. Give them a call. It doesn't matter where you're listening to this podcast. And I know we've got people from all over the country that tune in each and every week. Brent Skinner will hop a plane, hop a bus. Hell, if you live on a swamp, he'll get on one of those swamp boats and find you one way or another, and he will bring everything you need to pick out your custom-made suits, shirts, and everything in between. That's bpskinnerclothiers.com. Give him a shout today. Tell him Mike sent you, and go ahead and look your very best. Make that one of your New Year's resolutions. Look better than you ever have before. Brent Skinner can do that. All right, somebody's going to look better than they did going into Monday night on the national championship stage. It's in Cali. It's Alabama. It's Clemson. It's clearly the two best teams. There's nothing flukish about this matchup. We know that right now the line has moved. Alabama not long ago was a six point favorite. It's down to five and a half here. A lot of the experts picking Clemson to cover and Alabama to win JC Sherbert, your thoughts. I uh, I think the whole key to the game is going to be Alabama's ability to protect Tua. Um, Clemson's defense is all about getting to the quarterback. They do a really good job of that. Brent Venables dials some things up. I think when he dials it up, Tua has to be able to make him pay, and to be able to make him pay, they have to protect. And that's easier said than done against Clemson's defensive front. Um, I'm not. I, I don't buy that Clemson's secondary is is bad or a weakness. I think there's a lot of great players back there. I think it's a function of their scheme. Um, they're gonna and, and you look and you see the games that their defense has given up points and you know it, it's games where teams kind of know what to call against their blitz packages and it happens. Um, uh, you know, good calls versus bad calls and that that happens. So Alabama's gonna have to do that. I think the key for Bama's defense is. You know, we haven't really seen what happens when Clemson becomes one-dimensional. I think Bama does have an advantage on their defensive line, and if they can slow or stop Travis Etienne. Um, and there have been some games against teams that have tried to sold out and stop the run, and then Lawrence is letting them up, but th- they're not Alabama. Um, you know, and, and then just try to rattle Trevor Lawrence. Again, that's easier said than done. I think Justin Ross... Uh, is a superstar in the making uh, against his home state team on Monday night out in California for whatever reason. (laughs) Um, You know, he could have a big night. He's gotten better and better. T. Higgins is outstanding, and we all know Hunter Renfro is a weapon as well. And Trevor Lawrence, I'll tell you, the ball coming out of his hands looks as good as any quarterback in the country right now. I think this is a ball game that two weeks ago I would have said Alabama wins by two touchdowns. I think watching how it's kind of unfolded, uh, I think certain things will have to happen for Bama to achieve that. I think we're going down to the wire again, uh, and I think Alabama wins by four. Uh, let's go with the same score as last time, 35-31, since we're repeating things. Uh, that was the score in Tampa when Clemson won. I think Bama wins 35-31, but it's not the shocker of all shocks. If, if Clemson pulls it out, uh, in my opinion, after really digging into both of these teams last week and looking at the body of work, Clemson playing a little shorthanded uh, on the defensive line due to the suspension. Um, I, I here, here's what, I, first of all, you mentioned star in the making. I, I think ETN's already a star uh, and I love him as a weapon. But one thing about Nick Saban's defenses over the years and a game like this, more often than not, he's going to find a way to make sure 
you're going to beat Alabama through the air. You're not going to go ahead and ground and pound and gash. Alabama just doesn't let that happen ever. So I do believe it's going to come down to Trevor Lawrence if Clemson is going to pull this off. By the way, I can't help but think of this. You know, uh, Justin Herbert has decided to come back for another year at Oregon. Some people thought he'd be, if not the top quarterback, taken right up there with Dwayne Haskins of Ohio State. This is not a great year for quarterbacks coming out. It's it's nothing like last year where it was kind of chock full of potential first-round, second-round picks. It got me to thinking, if you actually had freshmen eligible to be drafted, I'm not so sure Trevor Lawrence wouldn't be the number one overall pick in the draft. I, I, this is not me listening to what scouts say or read. I'm just watching just the eye test. I haven't seen a dude with this kind of ability in a while. And he is freakishly good, and he's just scratched the surface. You're looking at the future number one pick in the draft. I say all that to get to this. He has to be the guy. Uh, Alabama will gamble every now and then on defense. They will put their corners on an island every now and then because, again, they're going to make sure you don't gash them. So he has to go out there and not be pedestrian. He has to be special. If he's special, I give Clemson a chance. If he's not, it's Alabama. This is going to be boring, but I'm basically picking the same margin of victory that you are. I would take Alabama by four. Take your pick on what it is, 35, 31, 30, 26, uh, even if it got high scoring, which sometimes these two teams can do because in college football, even if you have great defenses, dominant offenses are going to put points on the board. <clears throat> We've seen that before, even with the mighty Nick Saban defenses of the past when they go up against somebody like Clemson. So even if it got to say a 41 37 type game, wouldn't be shocking to me. I think, I think we're looking at a good game. That's all I really care for because we haven't had a ton of things this year that have really moved the needle above and beyond the norm. So just give us a classic, please. We implore you as college football nation, give us something to be excited about and, uh, and remember for a while, but, uh, hoping for a good game. I think it will be, I think this is the matchup we've been waiting for since about, I don't know, August, clearly the two top teams. And finally we get to see the matchup go down. Any final thoughts, JC? Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the game Monday night. Uh, you know, looking forward to getting into the off season. The second signing day is coming up. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I love every college football season. Um, but, but I'll agree, man. You know, look, it, it, this has not been the most intriguing or climactic year. Um, and, and I don't think it's going to stay that way. I think next year will probably end up being just bat crap nuts, you know, <laughs> because that's kind of how it is. But, um, you know, I hope they do kind of look at the health of the game in the offseason. Like I said, we agree that it's not in dire straits. I think there are some tweaks that they could do, um, you know, before we get too down far, too far down the road of there's a cabal of elite teams and then there's everybody else because, you know, that, that was part of the magic, you know, BYU winning a national title in 1984 because they went undefeated, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, not, not that you got to agree with that or, or what do they beat a six and five, Michigan, six and five team? Michigan because of free, freaking bowl tie-ins, dude, bowl yeah. tie-ins are the devil. Um, and, uh, you know, but it happened and that's part of the allure of the sport. I went to the college football hall of fame and I'll leave on this note, uh, last, uh, Sunday, uh, took the Marta in first time I've been there. 
uh, walked around and, and the health of the sport and just the passion of the people there. A lot of Gator fans there, uh, but a lot of fans of other schools as well, uh, is alive and well. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the sport can survive sort of an anticlimactic season like this. Um, I don't think it can survive, you know, becoming professionalized, though. And, and that's what I really am concerned about when I look 20 years down the road. And hopefully the good Lord uh, keeps me here for that long so I can see some of these tweaks happen and the sport remain healthy. I'm with you on that. I'll double down on that. And I'll also say in closing, uh, kind of a t- tough way to start the, uh, the new year, we lost uh, Mean oh. Gene and Super Dave. And two guys. Yeah. yeah when, we, when we were kids, I mean, God. yeah, I it, couldn't believe that. It's the, the only time I ever really followed wrestling was during that time frame oh, when yeah. I was, you know, uh, just a young kid. And uh, I, at that point it was like, wow, this is, this is different. And so it was the Hulk Hogan era and the Ric Flair era. And, uh, mean gene was, <laughs> I mean, it just had an uncanny knack. Like, you know, it's all fake, you know, it's all staged. And he is like conducting these interviews like he is, uh, interviewing the Shah of Iran in the eighties. I mean, it's just like, like it's a 60 minutes type piece. And then super Dave, I know a lot of people, the younger generation, I say younger, like we're that old. If you're below the age of, I don't know, 35, you know him as Funkhauser on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm a Curb fan. Um, I know a lot of people love Curb, and he, he had a, a recurring character on that. I go back to a show on Showtime called Bizarre, and it was with a comedian named John Biner. Again, when most kids are watching like cartoons, it's the kind of stuff I was watching. Sports and, a, and programs that were not made for young kids, but... We had cable and I managed to find a way. Uh, and he played this character, Super Dave Osborne, where he'd be in this big white, like almost like an evil Knievel suit. And he would get in like a rocket or a roller coaster or in front of a steamroller. And one way or another, the whole trick would go bad and he would get crushed, like literally uh, just pounded into oblivion. <laughs> and it was a, it was funny every single time. Anyway. He just died. Mean Gene just died. I think they were both uh, in their mid seventies. So uh, sad news to start off twenty nineteen. Yeah, I mean it, it. It it the Mean Gene thing. I mean, it, my buddy who's a big wrestling fan, um, just uh, you know, when Rowdy Roddy Piper died, we had to like literally, <laughs> you know, go get a beer. Um, another. Per- I mean, you know, we've had three though, Mike. We've had three. Captain Daryl Dragon of Captain and Tennille. And Tennille, yeah. Also yeah. passed away, so he sort of uh, followed there. Captain and Tennille. <laughs> do you do you do you they uh, come in threes with, with the lovely ladies with a girlfriend? Do you bust out a little Captain and Tennille sometimes? We haven't gotten to that level yet. I, I hope it progresses <laughs> to that point, but I save that type of thing. That's that's when you know the relationship has really gotten serious and you're you're talking soulmate territory. But no, I'm not there yet. I'm I'm not there yet. Oh man. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh to, to mean Gene Okerlin, to uh to the captain and uh, uh to, to Super Dave Osborne and forgive me, I just forgot his, his actual last name, but uh all three passing away, I think within twenty four hours of one another. So hopefully we'll, we won't have any of those stories. Next week on the J.C. Morgan podcast, where we will be talking about the national championship game and we'll look ahead. We'll start talking about this offseason because, as we know now, stuff just continues to happen in college football, not just during the season, 
but in the offseason as well. So until then, for J.C. Sherbert, Mike Morgan saying so long for the J.C. and Morgan podcast. We'll see you next week.